Um, We're in a series at the moment entitled The Gospel According to Isaiah. And over this series, we're looking at a few prophecies in the book of Isaiah uh, and allowing them to help us paint a picture of who Jesus is. The goal of this series isn't that we would do an in-depth study of Isaiah, but that we would allow it to help us stand back and marvel at Jesus, who we find in its pages. Alice put it beautifully when she said that we would come back and gaze at the King of Glory with fresh wonder and awe. And that's my hope again tonight as we talk about Isaiah 53, that we would step back and that we would see in its, uh, in its passage the cross of Christ and that we would marvel afresh at it. That we, wherever we're at, whether we're in church and we've heard sermons on the cross and we've read about the cross a thousand times before, or whether we're here and actually it's the first time we're hearing about the cross, wherever we're at, that we would become in awe of it again. But as I begin, let me just give a little bit of quick context into Isaiah and the context in which he's writing. So Isaiah wrote um, this prophetic book about 700 years before Jesus was born. Um, and he was prophesying into a nation largely in a mess. So um, after the reign of King Solomon, he was one of the first kings of Israel. The nation of Israel split into two. And so you had the northern part, which remained Israel, and then you had the southern part, which became Judah. And Israel, uh, so, and, um, Isaiah lived in Judah. Now, Isaiah witnessed his northern neighbor, Israel, be um, captured by, uh, as one scholar put it, the Assyrian war machine, um, which is quite a cool title, but probably one that isn't cool when you deserve the title of that. But they um, say Israel get conquered and removed from their land, and Isaiah then is given a prophetic picture that uh, actually Judah is going to befall a similar fate at the hands of the Babylonians. So these are tense and dangerous times in which Isaiah is prophesying. And James, a couple of weeks ago, unpacked that the, the kind of beginning of his prophecy is that there is a coming king that will rescue and redeem God's people. And that this savior king was supposed to come through the line of King David, who was King Solomon's dad. So this line was supposed to produce the savior king. But if we look at the history, ever since the nation split, so after King Solomon uh, and then the nation split into Israel and Judah, almost all of the kings that had led both of those nations were corrupt and evil. 2 Chronicles 33 verse 9 puts it like this. King Manasseh, who was one of the kings, misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. More evil. The hope of the Savior King coming through this line was looking unlikely. Then last week, Alice looked at Isaiah 42 and how the people would have been expecting a king who was going to bring about military and political power to remove you know, the Babylonian threat, the Assyrian threat, and recapture the land but that actually this coming king was going to be a servant. A servant king whose kingdom would look completely different to the one his people were expecting. Alice eloquently summed it up last week when she said, the long-hoped-for saviour would come with the king's authority and a servant's humility to bring about God's reality. Today, we are going to look at Isaiah 53, and we're going to find that, you know, at a time when David's line was more corrupt and evil than it had potentially ever been, and the threat of exile and potentially extinction looming, God steps in and gives a dramatic new revelation about how this coming king would bring about God's reality. 
It was not going to be via force as against the Assyrians, against the Babylonians, or any other people, but by becoming a sacrifice for the people's sin. My hope today is a really simple one, that through Isaiah 53, we would come back to the foot of the cross, that because of the cross, we would gaze upon the King of glory with fresh wonder and awe. The German theologians Franz Dielich and Karl Kiel remarked that it is like Isaiah is writing this passage while sitting beneath the cross upon Golgotha, which is the hill where Jesus died. The American pastor and Bible teacher J. Vernon McGee comments that Isaiah 53 is a photograph of the cross. Those who are acquainted with God's word, McGee says, realize that the 53rd chapter of Isaiah gives us a more vivid account of the crucifixion of Christ than is found elsewhere in the Bible. Just in case we were in any doubt that Isaiah 53 was a prophecy about Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus himself, whilst eating dinner with the disciples the night before he was crucified, quotes Isaiah 53 verse 12 and tells them this scripture is about him and must be fulfilled in him. We find this in Luke 22 verse 37. Jesus says this, it is written, this is him quoting Isaiah, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. We cannot read Isaiah 53 without being transported to the cross and to the good news of Jesus. So with that in mind, let us turn to the passage itself. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. This is a chapter which uh, George Campbell Morgan, who was um, an early 20th century pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, described as the greatest chapter in the entire Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is about halfway through the Bible, so open up around there. You'll find it will scroll halfway down. You'll get there. Um, as we said in the break, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one for free downstairs. Uh, so grab one at the end. The, the prophecy uh, actually starts in chapter 52, verse 13, and then goes right to the end of chapter 53. So when, you know, I would really encourage you when you're at home this week to read the whole prophecy and meditate on it. And when you do that, start in um, chapter 52, verse uh, 13. But we're going to start tonight at verse 3, and then we're going to jump forward to the end. So Isaiah 53. <clears throat> he was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And then jumping forward to verse 12, the final verse. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils of the strong. Because he poured his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I don't know about you, but I get what those theologians were talking about. I can't help but read this passage and see the cross of Christ. The 5th century theologian Augustine of Hippo said, Isaiah 53 is not a prophecy, it's a gospel. 
And Augustine's contemporary, Jerome, said of the person Isaiah, he is not so much a prophet as an evangelist. What they're getting at is in the heart of Isaiah 53 is the gospel, the good news for which martyrs have given their life, missionaries have traveled the globe, the good news on which you and I stand here tonight. We have a crucified king. This is our Jesus. This is the gospel, nothing else. That our king would come as a servant and would bear the sins of his people, your sin, my sin. That he would bear them on his body as he hung on the tree so that you and I could be forgiven. That Jesus would be, as it says in verse 5, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, the apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthian church, sums up the gospel Say simply, verse 3, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. And here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. It could not be plainer. At the heart of our gospel is that Christ died for our sins to set us free. Now I'm aware... Sin is not something that we in the West like to talk about that much, that even in churches we don't often talk about. But we have to understand sin to understand the work of the cross. Canon Peter Green puts it like this, Only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. We must be aware of our sin to receive the hope of the cross. So what is our sin? I'm not going to dive into this in too much detail, but just to, I guess, help us understand. Our sin is when we think or act in a way that is in opposition to God's teaching. It could outwork in behaviors or thoughts um, that Galatians 5 lists as the things of the flesh. So from verse 19, it says this, The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. But you know what? It's not just our actions. The intentions of our heart are as important. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 27 to 28, You have heard it that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ouch. I'm guessing if we were honest, many of us in this room have committed adultery in our hearts this week. It's not just our actions or our thoughts, they were our heart's intentions. It's also what we look to. Romans 1 talks about sinful desires as putting something else in the place of God. Verse 25 says this, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Augustine, the 5th cent- uh, th- century theologian I mentioned earlier, put it like this, My sin was this that I looked for beauty, pleasure, and truth, not in him, but in myself and in his other creatures. <clears throat> now, I'm aware as I talk about sin, some of us will be in different places, right? So some of us will have come in tonight, and we're super aware of our brokenness. We're just like, you know what, I know, you know, I can think back as soon as I started talking about it, your mind's like, boom, to that moment this week, maybe that you were watching porn, or that you lied to your friend, or that you 
gambled ridiculous amounts of money that you didn't have. You're like, okay, instantly you see it, you know it, you know that you're broken. But some of us, right, we just don't think about sin very much. So we, you know, we're kind of hard-pressed to think of immediate things. And, you know, if, if we were pressed on the issue, we'd say, yeah, you know, I am a sinner. Yeah, you know, I sin. But actually, we very rarely are consciously aware of it, and we very rarely confess it in prayer to God. And then there'll be those of us who we actually just don't think we're that sinful. And, you know, there'll be some of us within that group who we know that we're living in a way that is directly opposed to the clear teachings of Scripture but we actually think God's got it wrong and that we've got it right. And so we're like, oh, I know that you said that it's sin, but I actually don't think it's that bad. Whichever camp we're in tonight, we're, you know, we're, however we're coming when we're thinking about sin, could we come before the cross humbly tonight and examine our hearts? Could we take a step back and find the sin that is there in our hearts and confess it before the Lord. The Apostle Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans in chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are immune to it. I'm not immune to it. You're not immune to it. But because of this cross, there's hope, right? As Paul goes on in the next two verses, verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. We have all sinned, but we are freely justified. And that's the glorious hope that we stand in, right? We stand in the resurrection we sang about it tonight. We're no longer slaves to fear. We're children of God. But we must never, 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 never forget that it's because of the cross that we can sing that. That without the cross of Christ, we could not be justified freely. That we couldn't enter the presence of the Holy God and call him Father. It's because God loves us so much in his kindness that he was like, you know what, I'm going to come down, I'm going to bear your sin on the cross so that you could be set free. And we must never forget that. We must never forget, as it says in verse 12 of Isaiah 53, he poured his life out unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many. He bore your sin and my sin. We are able to walk in the freedom, free from shame, free from guilt, free from disappointment because of the cross. It's for no other reason that we are free. It comes down to the cross. The cross stands at the center of our faith. It should be our central focus. We should never lose sight of the glorious and the gory reality of the cross. I'll admit as I've been preparing for this message, I have realized how easy it is to lose sight of the cross. I don't know about you, but I find it really easy to focus on the good works of our church. You know, hearing about Grey Baby and the break and our restore ministries, like our church does so much, and I find it really easy to focus on that. I find it really easy to focus on our amazing kids' church, helping our kids grow in faith. I find it really easy to focus on the amazing parties and socials that our church throws. 
And scarily, I find it really easy to get complacent and forget that actually none of that is possible without the cross. We're not a social club. We'd be average at best if we were. <laughs> there, are better, <laughs> there are better ones out there. But we're bearers of the gospel. You, know, you may know that <clears throat> one of my roles in church is I'm the worship pastor. And sometimes I lose sight of the cross. Because I'm thinking about, okay, what are the best songs for us to sing in the church? And what's the best electric guitar riffs? And are these jeans skinny enough for me to leave worship in? And <laughs> it's, it's true. I, I, got, I, I made that joke this morning and, I, and then made a joke about bootcut jeans being like 20 years out of date and, and someone actually texted me this afternoon being like, I can still worship in bootcut jeans you can, you can, it's just it's harder for you <laughs> it's not, it's not. That's, not, that's not the gospel you can worship God in any kind of jean but sometimes right, I lose focus of the cross because I set my sights on my comfort or my security my family's safety. Let me ask you, what are you focusing on? Is the cross at the center of your focus? Like you're looking down the scope of a sniper rifle and all you can see is the cross. Or are you looking somewhere else? Maybe it's your career, maybe it's your degree, maybe it's your social life. Maybe it's more general. Maybe it's your happiness, your comfort, your right to travel and see the world. What is it that you're looking to? Maybe you're looking to so many things, right, that not a single thing is in focus. And you're just like, you're so far back. You're like, I just can't see anything. Can't make anything out. I just feel like I'm looking at everything. Some of us, they're like, we'll be here. And actually, all we're focused on is getting through the day. Some of us are in really tough situations and we can't help but focus on that. Like nothing else seems to consume our mind than the turmoil that we're going through. But wherever we're at, right, whatever we're looking at, what does it look like for us tonight to surrender before the cross again? To humbly refocus our hearts and our minds and our sight on the cross? What do you need to surrender? What do you need to confess before the cross? There's no shame. But, you know, is it your pride? Is it your selfishness? Is it your lust? Is it some of your relationships? Is it your career, your degree? You know, what is it for you? Fill in the blank. What do you need to surrender before the cross? Maybe it's everything. Maybe you're here and you've never surrendered before Jesus. Maybe tonight's the night that you see the cross, you see what he did for you so that you could become free. And you're like, okay, well, I come and I humbly bow. We as a people can never lose sight of the cross. It is the foundation of our faith. We have no hope apart from it. And as we refocus ourselves on the cross and as we realign our sights with it, Isaiah 53 should be central to our understanding as it was for the New Testament writers of the work of the cross. The allusions within the New Testament to Isaiah 53 and the quotes from it are too numerous to mention. But to pick a particularly poignant one, 
In 1 Peter 2, verse 21 to 25, Peter writes this, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now he quotes verse 9 from Isaiah 53. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to who judged justly. Then quoting verse 4, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Quoting verse 5, by his wounds you have been healed. Quoting verse 6, for you were like sheep gone astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Peter is directly linking Isaiah 53 to his understanding of the cross and so should we. When we read its words, we should see the cross. When we read verse 5 and it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. When we read these words, we must focus on the cross. And we should stop looking to anything else. We should be like Paul in his letter to the Galatians when he says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are you boasting in? Man, as I've been thinking about it this week, I find it so easy to boast in things outside of the cross. But Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot lose sight of it. We have nothing else to stand on. We have nothing else to boast in. The power of our gospel is not in good works. It's not in important actions. The power of our gospel is not in the worship. It's not in our compassion ministries. It's not in our parties. It is in nothing but the cross. It is in nothing but the crucified God on the cross. We cannot lose sight of the rugged cross of Calvary. Without it, we are nothing. The hope of resurrection is not possible without the cross. We get to the resurrection through the bloody cross. The freedom that we can live in is only possible with the cross. The forgiveness we long for is only possible with the cross. The healing we seek is only possible with the cross. The mercy we need is only possible with the cross. The redemption we hope for is only possible with the cross. The transformation we desire is only possible with the cross. We stand on nothing else. The cross, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1, is the power of God to save. Paul explained emphatically that the Jews were demanding signs, right? They wanted to see miracles. They were like, when we see the power, you know, through the miracle, you know, someone being healed, then we'll, then we'll believe in God. And then he was saying that the Greeks, right, they wanted wisdom. So they're like, well, we need you to explain everything to us so that we can understand God. And Paul just says, you know what? We, pri- we preached Christ crucified and nothing else. It was a stumbling block to the Jews and it was folly to the Greeks. But it's the power of God to save. If we ever lose sight of the cross, if we ever stop preaching Christ crucified, we've missed the point. If we ever in our day-to-day lives when we're at work, you know, and we're talking about the hope, if we forget the crucified God on the cross, we've missed the point. It's this plus nothing. You know, it's not this plus, oh, but I got up at seven this morning to pray. Great. That's amazing. You should do that. That doesn't save you. 
This saves you. It's not this plus, oh, but I lead a small group and I volunteer on teams. Again, amazing, you should do that. That doesn't justify you before the Lord. It's only the cross of Calvary. And that is why we have to come back again afresh before it, look in awe and wonder on it and say, oh, thank you, Jesus. I know that I'm hammering this home, right? I know. It's like I said at the start, it's a simple message. But it's because it's so important. It's because we cannot ever lose sight of it. We must always, always come back to the foot of it. We have no other message. We're a gospel people or we're a nobody. <coughs> Last week we were at um, Cause to Live For, which is a big national conference. We talked about it loads in the church where students, 20s and 30s from across the movement gather to worship Jesus. And we had this absolute legend of a guy uh, called Simon Ponsonby um, come and teach us. He's this uh, slightly older guy, Anglican um, vicar and theologian. He wears leather waistcoats and white rim spectacles. Like, he's a great guy. Um, but he was sharing a story on the Friday. He was talking about the cross. Um, and he just wrecked my heart. But he, he shared this story that humbled me. Uh, and as I'm bringing this into land, I want to tell you guys that he, they had um, a Nigerian man come and work at their church for about a year and, uh, you know, kind of just served the church and that type of stuff. And just before he was leaving, they did an interview with him on a Sunday and spoke to him and asked him, you know, what's it like following Jesus back in Nigeria? And some of you will know that Nigeria is a very persecuted nation if you're a Christian. The nation's split in two. The south, actually, is largely safe. It's dominated by Christians there. But the middle and the north, um, is, uh, the dominant religion is extreme Islam. And churches are burned down, are shot up, blown up. You know, Christians in the north of Nigeria who are meeting on a Sunday like we are could not do so in safety. So he's, they're chatting and, you know, obviously, and he's sharing about this. He's talking about how difficult it is back um, in Nigeria. And obviously it gets very somber. And in that moment they ask him, they say, do you, you know, do you have any words of wisdom or encouragement that you'd like to share with us here in the UK? And he said this, don't sell out in the West the gospel for which we die in Africa. And man. I was so convicted. So easy, isn't it? To lose sight of the cross. It's so easy to focus on other things. To get complacent. Just be like, oh yeah, yeah, just go to church, it's cool. Oh, I am just forgiven, it's cool. For our brothers and sisters in countries across the world, not just in Nigeria, are dying for their faith, dying just to gather, willing for the cross of Jesus to put all of their safety on the line. That's challenging. Would we never lose sight of this cross that is worth dying for? Would we never lose sight of the hope that we have in it? Would we come afresh again tonight and surrender before it? Would we lay down our pride? Would we confess our sins knowing that it's the kindness of the Father that leads us to repentance? Knowing that it's through the cross that we get the resurrection life that Jesus offers.
What does it look like for you tonight and this week and the weeks ahead to refocus your life on the cross of Christ?